Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. When it comes to eating well, most of us have a good idea of what's good and what's best avoided. But have you ever thought how your gender can impact the way different foods affect us. The CSIRO have researched to show that gender matters and have just released a book called The Women's Health and Nutrition Guide. It takes us through all the life stages with specific information on food and lifestyle for each. Associate Professor Bev Mulhauser is the Research Director of the Nutrition and Health Program at CSIRO and one of the authors of their latest book. Hi Bev, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Why a nutrition guide just for women? Well, I think um, it's fair to say that the principles that are in the book around healthy eating really um, and lifestyle factors do really apply to both men and women. But there are some specific things that are unique to women, um, particularly our hormones um, and the fact that we, um, unlike men, um, don't have hormones that are on an even keel, as we all well know. Um, they <laughs> cycle up and down. It affects our mood um, and it also affects things like our appetite and the way that we, the kind of um, nutrition that we need to, to cope with, with those changes. Uh, and obviously there's, there's things that are unique to women like being pregnant, um, giving birth, um, breastfeeding, which also have really specific nutritional requirements and, and menopause as well and, and the changes that happen then. So there are some key sort of life stages and um, you know, hormonal factors that do make, make us unique. What's the science behind eating well and fertility? I mean, how much impact can it have? I think it's fair to say it has a, a, a massive impact and I think we're understanding that more and more um, that you know, there are factors that you can't change that affect fertility, such as, you know, your age um, and some of your sort of family history and things like that. But nutrition and lifestyle affects um, in both men and women, but particularly in women, um, affects the you know reproductive health, so the quality of, of sperm in men, but in women it affects the, the quality of, of the eggs. Um, it affects um, a hormone cycling so um, and ovulation, which is the only time that you can actually get pregnant, when how often you ovulate and and, and so forth can be affected by the type of what you're eating um, and your activity levels. So it is becoming more and more clear that really to optimize the the chance of getting pregnant and having a healthy pregnancy, being having a, a you know, good, well-balanced diet and uh, being physically active um, well before starting a family is really the, the most optimal approach. Are there any foods in particular that women should eat if they want to fall pregnant? Um, there's not really any sort of magic magic bullets or magic foods um, when it comes to fertility. It, it really is about getting you know the right balance of nutrients, which is about being sensible, focusing on the core foods, um, core food groups, um, limiting things like alcohol, obviously not smoking. And um, if you are following a particular diet, whether it be you know vegan or, or vegetarian, or if there are particular food groups that you have to avoid because of allergies or intolerances, just looking at what sort of nutrients 
you might, making sure you're getting some of the sort of key nutrients like iron and, and folates, obviously an important one, and calcium, vitamin D. So if you have a particular dietary needs or you're following a particular diet that might miss out on some of those nutrients, then just maybe going to your, to your GP and getting your nutrient levels tested to work out if you do need to take supplements. Obviously, ideally, you get things from food, but understanding that's not always possible. What are your tips on treating morning sickness? Oh, yeah, this is a, this is a big one. Um, I mean, it varies, it varies between women. And I think there's not, again, any particular magic, magic, bullet approach with that. I think um, keeping foods that are, um, I guess, more more simple foods or not really not spicy foods, um, things like caffeine can kind of aggravate it in some women. I know, you know, from, from my own experience, um, it was really about having a ready availability of, of plain crackers in my handbag at all times was probably my main go-to. Um, and I know a few of my friends who had the same sort of thing, sometimes regular eating smaller amounts rather than trying to eat big meals. But it, it is something that is still not very well understood why some women really struggle and some of us, you know, seem to get through kind of unscathed. I think there are, you know, women who have very severe morning sickness can be concerned that it might be affecting their baby. Um, I think the evidence is really showing that, you know, babies are very good at protecting themselves in that early period in particular from and making sure they're, they're getting all the nutrients that they need. There's a lot of mechanisms that really take nutrients out of the mother and put it to the baby kind of preferentially. So there's very little evidence that it's or no evidence that it has any sort of long-term adverse effects. Um, so it is about trying to eat as as well as you can and regularly in small amounts and also just as soon as when you do feel well, like focusing on really getting the most nutritious food that you can. Now, after you have your babies, it can be challenging to lose weight and there are many diets out there. Are any of them likely to work? You know, there's diets, are, you know, there's, as you say, there, there's so many diets and there's so many sort of diet tips and, and, you know, super diets and celebrities who, you know, stand up and say that they got back to their you know, pre-pregnancy rate within, you know, two weeks of giving birth. Uh, I think the reality is that in that early period after you give birth, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of things going on emotionally, hormonally. You've got a newborn to look after. And it probably isn't the best time to be focusing on, uh, really focusing on a, a really strict and, and restrictive sort of weight loss regime. In fact, that's probably true across every stage of life. Um, I think the the best thing to do in that period, I mean, is to, again, focus on, you know, having something that's all diets that are about changing behaviours in a sustainable way are diets that are going to be more effective rather than things that are highly restrictive, um, restrict whole food groups or, you know, you're only eating from a, uh, a very, very small number of foods um, for long periods are unlikely to be sustainable in the long term. And the evidence really suggests that people who follow those sort of diets tend to regain all the weight that they lose once they go back to normal eating patterns. So I think that what, you know, the advice from the CSIRO has always been is 
that changing changing your dietary habits is about finding a way of eating that works for you that does focus on that whole foods um, across the core food groups and doesn't completely eliminate indulgences um, but makes them you know manageable so that you have them at the odd time rather than all the time. Mm. Well, speaking of indulgences and having occasional ones, how much alcohol is really okay? Yeah, this is a very um, hot topic and I think it's um, it very much the evidence is really suggesting that, you know, alcohol at all levels can do some harm potentially, that obviously during pregnancy and while trying to get pregnant, it's not safe to or recommended that you don't drink because any level can can be harmful to the baby otherwise there are you know guidelines around how much alcohol is is recommended to be okay it's now the same for men and women if you can maintain a kind of level where you're having you know one or two glasses with dinner of an evening that's probably the level that would be you know the maximum that would be recommended what it boils down to is that alcohol is a is a poison a toxin so it does affect you know the organs in your body to some extent and so if you're consistently drinking large amount of alcohol then that's that's sort of doing doing damage over time so it's about limiting and then having periods where you're not drinking alcohol so that you can eliminate that from from your body yeah so even if you do have uh say one drink a night with your dinner you still would recommend that you go for a period of time where you're not even doing that. So maybe just having uh, a drink with your dinner on the weekend or is that, would that be right? It probably also depends on the type of alcohol. You know, there's there's studies, the sort of Mediterranean diet type studies and the studies, the French, you know, the, the red wine paradox as it's known. I mean, I think that it's effectively what the evidence is saying is that any level of alcohol, you know, really you should have periods where you're not drinking or alcohol-free days. But certainly it's difficult to sort of generalise because it does also depend on, on what you're drinking and obviously the person and how they metabolise the alcohol does does vary quite a bit between people. There are certain people who, who really can't metabolise alcohol at all and they, you know, really struggle even with, with one drink. Um, they're just unable to process it and it also depends what you're eating with the with the alcohol as well. So I think it's any hard and fast rule but I think generally speaking, you know, reducing your alcohol, limiting your alcohol intake and having those days where you are not consuming alcohol is is a recommendation that's pretty universal. Does what we eat have any impact on things like fibroids and endometriosis? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, it, I guess the short answer is we we don't know there's any definitive link. Whereas with things, some of the other reproductive disorders like polycystic ovary syndrome, there is much more of a, an association between obesity, poor diet, um, insulin resistance, and PCOS. So I don't I don't know that there's any particular evidence that there are diet or lifestyle factors that have a, a massive impact on endometriosis. Do you think it's an area that needs further investigation? Like is it likely that they might there might be some link if we already know that it, it can impact things like, as you said, polycystic ovaries? Yeah, I mean there's certainly a lot of research happening right now around reproductive health and um, reproductive disorders and and nutrition and lifestyle so that would include endometriosis I think there is you know certainly if 
there are ways that you can reduce risk through diet and lifestyle, then that's really beneficial. Um, we've certainly you know, shown for a lot of other conditions, there are things that you can do with your diet and your lifestyle modifications that really have a massive impact for some women in particular. So yes, it is an area that is, there's active research and there's, you know, I think that's a very, you know, a really important sort of area that, that of focus. We all probably want to eat better or behave better when it comes to our food and lifestyle. But do you have any tips for disrupting some more unhealthy habits and implementing the healthier ones? So part of the book does go into that as to how you disrupt unhealthy habits and replace them with healthy habits. Really, the main message there is that it's taking small steps. It's often unhealthy behaviours are unconscious. We don't really understand why we do them. We do them automatically and in response to certain cues. So, for example, you might get home at night and you know, get home from work and grab a, back, a pack, bag of chips and have a snack. And it may not be that you're actually hungry. It's a learned response over time. And you're, you're sort of, you may start off doing it because you're hungry or you may just want, a, you know, you, over time you come to sort of associate the two and it's an automatic response. So it's about understanding what the cues are that trigger those unhealthy behaviours. So it might be, you know, sitting down in front of the TV or flopping into a chair as soon as you get home and then, making a conscious decision that instead of doing that, you will not go for a walk before you start making dinner and that will be a distraction and will replace that unhealthy, just sitting down in front of the TV with a bag of chips with going for a walk and then you sort of reset that. And I think there's evidence that it takes it takes time to replace those behaviours and eventually it becomes sort of an automatic response to do the, the healthy behaviour. Bev, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Thank you very much. That's Associate Professor Bev Malhalsler. She's a Research Director of the Nutrition and Health Program at CSIRO. If you're keen to check out the book, follow the links in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.